Why don't we pray to start? Father, we thank you for these reminders this morning that the only way that we can come is because of what Christ has done. And Lord, but the the thing that's so wonderful is that we can come because of what Christ has done. You told us that we could come not with fear and trembling, but with boldness and confidence through faith in Him because of His blood that cleanses from all sin. Oh Lord, thank You for the blood of Jesus this morning. Thank You for that fountain that flows to wash away sin and impurity. And thank You, Lord, that You've seen fit to draw us to Yourself and to give us that new garment of white. And just thank You this morning, Lord, for for making us Your children, for forgiving us of our sins, for giving us Your Holy Spirit within. And Lord, we come to You for this time now and just ask that You'd feed us and, and help us, Lord, to lay hold of Your truth. I think of what You said there, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, Lord, help us not just to, to hear things that are true, Lord, but to be changed by them and to ultimately love You and to love Your people more because of them. We ask for the help of Your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I do want to pray for the time there in Arnold. I don't know who's speaking yet today, but just pray for those saints who are away from us and over there and pray that You'd have something for them and pray that You'd help those who will be speaking. Just ask that you would anoint them and that you would bless that time. Help us now, Lord. Exalt your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to look this morning at two different places in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus Christ is accused of not caring. Can anybody think of where they are or maybe where one of them is? Okay, when the disciples were out in the boat with, with Jesus on the sea, they, he's asleep and they wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then there's one other place, it's a completely different situation, and it's interesting that it's so different and yet that same question comes up. Does anybody know where that one is offhand? No, not Lazarus dying. That, although that's, you would think that that would be where it was. It's in Luke 10 with the account of Martha and Mary. Um, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all of the serving? And so two completely different situations, and yet they're bound together by this this same question. And what I want to do is look at those two accounts this morning. And of all, in light of all the questions that people asked Jesus, to me, this is a pretty incredible question for somebody to ask him. And I think we'll see that, see why I say that as we go along. But what I want to do this morning is consider these two accounts and what we can learn from these two accounts. And they're so different, and in some ways I feel like what I've done is kind of taken two short sermons on a different topic and just kind of mashed them together. But, but I hope there's something here for us, and I think, it, I think it'll be good for us to consider these things. And so just so you know where we're headed, we'll start here in Mark 4 with the account of the disciples in Jesus out in the boat on the sea. And from this passage, I hope we'll see something about what it means to face tribulations in the Christian life. That's the the context here, I think, the the lesson that the Scriptures are teaching us from that passage. And then after that, we'll go to Luke 10 and we'll look at the account of Mary and Martha and, and see what we can learn from that about priorities in the Christian life. 
So that's kind of where we're headed. So let's start in Mark 4. And just to get a little bit of context here, I'll just read verse 1. It says, He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him, that's Jesus, that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So he's out, he's teaching from this boat. So that's kind of the scene here. And then we come down to verse 35 after he gives a bunch of this teaching. And then in verse 35, it says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? See the connection there between fear and unbelief. Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, they became very much afraid. So here's a type of fear that's a good type of fear to have. They became very much afraid because of the revelation of Christ's glory to them and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we'll start here, just a few things from verse 35, going back to verse 35. And the first thing I want us to see from this account is that Jesus was the one that initiated this journey. Notice there in verse 35, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. In Matthew's account of this event, it says he gave orders to depart to the other side. In other words, it wasn't the disciples' idea to go to the other side, it was Jesus' idea. And what we need to get from that is that God is in control of the tribulations that we face. And he sovereignly directs and initiates those tribulations. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Remember Joseph there in Genesis, everything that happened to Joseph was a result of his brother's hatred for him because of these dreams that he was having. But where did those dreams come from? They didn't just spring up in Joseph's mind of his own accord. God gave him those dreams and caused those dreams to occur. And the events that happened after that as a result. Also, recall the situation with Job and how it all began. Um, God is the one that initiated that. Have you considered my servant Job? So there again, there's God doing the initiating of this. For the person who sets out to follow Christ, trials and tribulations are unavoidable because as we follow Christ, he's the one who leads us into those trials and tribulations. Jesus said it this way, John 16:33, through many tribulations, I'm sorry, in the world you have tribulations. So just kind of a blanket statement, John 16:33, in the world you have tribulations. And then Paul in Acts 14 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The only way to enter the kingdom is through many tribulations. No one gets into the kingdom of God without some battle scars that no one does. The only way to get in is through many tribulations. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Uh, Rutherford said this, All the saints have their own measure of winter before their eternal summer. And all the saints do. 
Secondly, from verse 35, we can see here that God is not only in control of bringing these things about, but he's also in control of the severity of the tribulations that we face. Notice that Jesus waited until evening before telling the disciples to set out in that boat. Now, it would be one thing to be caught in a storm on the sea in the middle of the daytime. I mean, that would be frightening enough. But Jesus actually waits until evening to have them go, and they get caught in this storm on the sea when it's pitch black outside. He could have commanded the disciples to leave earlier. He could have waited until the morning to set out, but he commands them to go in the evening. And not only that, but this is no small storm. Look at verse 37. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. I mean, the boat had water in it. It was going down. This is not a small storm here. In Matthew's account, it says there arose a great storm. Literally, there arose a shaking storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. And then Luke says it like this, a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now, we can read right over this. This was a serious storm and it's not occurring in the middle of the daytime. It's occurring in the pitch black darkness of nighttime with waves coming over the side of the boat. I mean, they were fearing for their lives. But the thing to see here again is why were they in this storm in the middle of the night? Why were they there? It was because Jesus had directed them into this particular storm. And so we need to realize that God is 100% not just in control of bringing these things into our lives, but he's in control of the severity and amount of trial that we face as well. And he will often make the trial more difficult so that he gets even more glory and praise when he delivers us from it. And you see this in different places in the scriptures, but he delights in bringing about impossible situations that only he can solve. And a lot of times things get worse before they get better. And we've all seen that before. It's like you something comes into your life and you think, I just can't handle this. And you cry out to God about it and it gets worse before it gets better. And he often does that, allows things to get worse and more impossible so that he can be the only one who can bring us out of it. And then the last thing here from verse 35, I want to point out here that there's an assurance that's knit right in together with this tribulation. What do I mean by that? Well, notice here, Jesus does not say, he doesn't say, let us go perish in the middle of the sea. That's not what he says. He says, let us go over to the other side. You see, there's an assurance there that's knit right in with his command. In other words, the outcome of this is secure. They will get to the other side. They will. But they have to go through the storm to get there. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They will get to the other side, but they have to go through the storm to get there. Now, I don't know what, what you're going to face in the days ahead. You don't know what I'm going to face in the days ahead. But listen to what Paul says here again in Romans 8 in light of this, what we're talking about this morning. Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress? Now, you think about the disciples there in that boat. There was tribulation. There was distress. Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, I mean, Paul covers everything here. There isn't a single thing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I mean, you want to talk about something you can hang your hat on, there it is. There's an assurance here that we can rest in, regardless of what our circumstances might be, regardless of what we're going through at the present time, you will make it to the other side. You're going to have to go through the storm to get there, but you're going to, you're going to make it. And then verse 36, it says, Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And then verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And what I want to bring out from these two verses is that Jesus is in the boat with them. And God, God was with them in the middle of the storm, and God is with you in the midst of the tribulations that you face. He has promised us that He would never leave us nor forsake us. And a lot of times we think that promise ends the moment that we go into a difficult time, but it's just as true in the middle of a difficulty as it is at any other time in your life. He's promised He would never leave you nor forsake you. The safest place for a Christian to be is smack dab in the middle of where God wants you to be, even if that means being out in the middle of a lake at night in a little boat with a deadly storm raging around you. That's the safest place for you to be. Why? Because God is in the boat with you, and He's there with you. The only way that Paul and Silas could sing songs in the night while locked up in a jail is because God was in there with them. That's the only way. And the same is true for every one of His children. Reminded me of that verse from Isaiah 41. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I mean, what were these disciples doing? They were anxiously looking about them. You know, they were fearful for their lives. Anxious, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And again, in Genesis 28, here's a promise. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Matthew, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He just says it right there, I'm with you always. And so there's that promise there that he's in the boat with us. And I like the way Rutherford said this again. He had such a way with words. He said this, The floods may swell and roar, but our ark shall swim above the waters. It cannot sink because a Savior is in it. And so he's right there, you see. The boat can't go down because Jesus is in the boat with you. It can't sink. And then also from verse 38, it says, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In the midst of this terrible, life-threatening storm, where was Jesus? He's asleep on the cushion. And this is incredible. He was snuggled up on a cushion, fast asleep in the boat. And it struck me one time as I was reading this just how wonderful it is that Jesus was sleeping right now. Just how wonderful of a thing this is. You see, the disciples took that as a sign of indifference on his part, that he didn't care about what was happening to them. But really, it's a wonderful thing. Can you imagine the picture you would get in your, in your mind if the Scripture said that Jesus was running up and down on the boat, fearful, trying to figure out what he was going to do? I mean, that just doesn't jive with, with who you know him to be. You see, it doesn't fit. Because it makes it sound like the situation was somehow out of his hands, which, of course, is never true. I mean, the fact that he is asleep there is such an assurance that he is in complete control. He's not worried at all about what's happening, you see. He's in utter control of the situation. Nevertheless, from the disciples' perspective, it looked like Jesus was pretty indifferent to what was happening. And that is often the way, the feeling that we get when we're in the middle of trials. 
But the fact is, he's right there in the boat with us. He's simply waiting for us to wake him up. He delights to deliver his people. But listen, he delights to deliver his people, but as a result of his people crying out to him for help. Listen to Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. In other words, God is glorified by delivering us from trials and and temptations, but not in some kind of automatic or mechanical way, but as a result of our cries to him for help. He delights to do that. Because when we cry to him for help, he gets the glory then as the one who meets the needs of his people when they cry to him. And we know by experience that sometimes it takes more to wake him up than it does at other times. And he may test us in this way to see how serious we are in really wanting his help. And it's pretty incredible, isn't it, how easily God can get rid of us sometimes. You know, you cry out for help once or twice and it's like, well, God's not coming. I guess I'm just going to have to face this alone. You know, and the whole reason he's not answering you at that time is because he's trying to test to see how serious you are about wanting help. And the person who's serious will not give in that easily. We must be like that blind man who cried out to Jesus to heal him. And he would not be quiet no matter what the people said. You know, be quiet. Don't close your mouth. But he kept on going regardless of what other people said about him. And think of this Syrophoenician woman. I was just looking at this again this morning. It's so wonderful. There's four different times here when she just completely gets a stiff arm from either the disciples or from the Lord. This is in Matthew 15. You remember this Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus on behalf of her daughter who was demonized. And first it says, he answered her not a word. So there's the first, you know, just didn't say anything to her. I mean, most of us, that's where we would stop, right there. He answered her not a word. And then the disciples came to Jesus and said, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. And so apparently she was shouting at the disciples too. And so the disciples, get her out of here. She's shouting at us, you know, so twice now. And then the third, for third time, it says, Jesus actually says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so again, I'm not helping you, I'm sorry. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then fourthly, Jesus says to her, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, you would think after all of this rejection and after all of these you know, words of um, rebuke in some ways, that she would just leave. But she never did. And finally, she gets help after those four things there that, that occur. Finally, she gets help. And it's a, it's a, it's a lesson for us and what it means to persevere in, in asking for God's help. But anyway, the point here, if you're in the boat with Jesus in the middle of the storm, you might have to shake him more than once or twice to wake him up. But he will wake up in his time. He will wake up and come to the aid of his brethren. God delights in delivering his people, but in response to their cries for help. And then here also in verse 38, we have the question that started our time this morning. It says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And I just want to say three things about this question here in the context of Mark 4. First of all, I want us to consider the audacity of this question. Think of the audacity here. Here are fallen, sinful human beings who have done nothing but rebel against their perfectly holy and perfectly good creator who now dare to question the care of that creator, the very one who provides them with life and breath and all things on a moment-by-moment basis. In other words, the very breath that the disciples were using to speak this accusation was breath given to them by the one they were accusing. Isn't that incredible? 
do you not care? If it wasn't for the fact that he was sustaining them moment by moment, it says in Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. If he wasn't doing that at that very moment, they wouldn't even have the breath to speak that accusation to him. Think of the audacity of this question. Secondly, think of the absurdity of the question. Not only is the question inappropriate, but it's absurd and foolish. Who were they addressing this question to? They were addressing it to the very one who came from heaven to earth for the very purpose of saving men and women like these accusing disciples and to keep them from perishing. See, it's amazing here. Think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, isn't that amazing? The very purpose he came into the world, the very reason he came as a man was to keep them from perishing. And now they have the, the gall to ask him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? His very coming as a man, his entire life, is nothing less than one grand demonstration of the infinite care and love that God has for perishing souls. And yet they can actually ask him if he, if he cares that they're perishing. It's incredible. And then lastly, consider the patience and gentleness of Christ here in responding to these question to this question first of all he goes ahead and he answers their cries for help anyway which is incredible in itself but secondly when, when they're safe again and after everything dies down he still refuses to rebuke them for asking this question he rebukes them for other matters and other reasons but he doesn't say anything about this question that they ask him it's incredible consider the patience and gentleness of god in this what kindness and mercy I mean, we should be so thankful that our Savior is like this. I mean, just this one thing here is enough to show us the divinity of Christ. Patience like this. Patience and gentleness can only come from God himself. Matchless, godlike, and divine, as the hymn says. Gentleness and patience. And then verse 39. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. In response to the cry for help, Jesus calms the storm with nothing but a brief word. So we know, again, based on this, that his delayed response in acting is not because of a lack of power to deliver the disciples. All it takes is a few words. All it takes is a word for him to speak, and it becomes calm. The delayed response is a result of God's delight in waiting for his people to call upon him to meet their needs before he comes to their rescue. Now, there is no stormy tribulation that you will face, no matter how severe, that God can't deliver you from with just a word from His mouth. That's all it takes, a word, hush, be still, and it's over with. I like the way this hymn says it, Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as He has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. But the question for us is this morning, will we, will we cry out to him in the day of trouble? Will we persevere in crying out to him? Will we ask for the help that we need? And if he doesn't answer us immediately, will we keep on crying out like that Syrophoenician woman and like the blind man wanting to be healed? Will we trust him in the midst of the storm? And this leads right to verse 40 then. He said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And as I said earlier, he doesn't rebuke the disciples for their inappropriate question, but he does rebuke them for their lack of faith. And we can learn from this just how inexcusable 
unbelief really is in the Christian life. I mean, you would think that Jesus might cut them a little slack here. They're out pitch black at night. Waves are coming in. The boat's filling up. They're, they're going to die if he doesn't do something. You would think that Jesus would cut them a little slack in being afraid. But he cuts through all of that and doesn't give them any slack whatsoever. He says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And it's similar to what happened with Peter there. When Peter walked on the water, you remember he began to look at the waves and he began to sink down into the water. And Jesus said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, it's like, well, I mean, he's walking on water. That's pretty good, you know. But Jesus says, no, why did you doubt? It's no big deal to walk on water. Why did you doubt? Why do you have such little faith? In other words, when it comes to trusting the Lord, there is absolutely no room for unbelief. Even in the midst of tribulation, unbelief and worry and fear are inexcusable. Always. There's never an excuse for unbelief. And this seems harsh to us, but that's only because we can grow callous so easily to just how evil unbelief really is in the Christian life. It says this way in Hebrews, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You see, to not believe God is not just some kind of innocent little thing that God's going to overlook. It's evil. It's an evil thing to, um, to have unbelief in your heart. It's evil to disbelieve God. Even in the midst of a storm like this, it's evil to doubt. It's not something that God excuses. There's no excuse for it. It's evil. Unbelief in the midst of a storm is inexcusable because, why? Because God's in the boat with you, you see. And if he's in the boat with you, there's never any excuse for fear or for doubt. And so here then, Mark 4, we had the disciples accusing the Lord of not caring in the midst of a trial. So now what I'd like to do then is go to Luke 10, and I'd like for us to move on to this second place where the Lord is accused of not caring. It's a completely different situation, completely different set of circumstances, completely different people involved. And yet again, this same question comes up. And I think we'll see here, as we consider this, some things about priorities in the Christian life. This is in Luke 10, and we'll start in verse 38. It says, now as they were traveling along, so apparently it wasn't just Jesus here, he had some disciples with him as well. As they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone. Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. And as I said earlier, I think the main thing that I want us to get from this section this morning is dealing with making priorities in the Christian life. But notice here in verse 38, it says they were traveling along. So again, apparently Jesus wasn't alone. He was with some disciples. And they come to this woman's house, Martha, Martha and Mary's house. And 
it's likely here that Martha is probably the older sister, who in that culture, the older sister would have been responsible for taking care of any guests that came over. That was just the way the culture was. The older sister was responsible for tending to the guests. And then while she is trying to do that, we're told here that Mary was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Now, I think we should take a second here and sympathize with Martha a little bit. I mean, you, you know what it's like, especially you ladies, you have some guests come over and you want to be good hosts, you know, and you want to show them a good meal. And these, this, these weren't just any guests. I mean, we're not just talking about having your buddies over. We're talking about Jesus himself coming over for a meal and his disciples coming over. And so you can sympathize with her here. You know, you don't just want to cook hot dogs. You want to make something nice. Uh, and so we can sympathize with that. And I think we can understand that. And I think there's something admirable about that, that her desire to want to serve her guests appropriately. But notice in verse 40, it says, Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Literally, notice in the margin there, if you have an NASB, Martha was distracted with much service. And I think that's important, and we'll get to that here in a second. It reminds me a lot of my grandma on my mom's side. You know, we'd go over to her place for maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, and my grandma would just be all over the place, 100 places at once, and then finally everything would be ready, and she would sit down at the table for about two seconds and then pop back up. Does anybody need anything? Does anybody need anything? And she'd run off and come back for a couple seconds and pop back up. I mean, it was like she could not sit still. It's like, Grandma, just sit down and eat, you know. Um, but anyway, that's the picture I get here of Martha. It's like she cannot just sit still. She's trying to, to tend to her guests. So Martha here, she's working her tail off, trying to serve everyone, but then she begins to wonder, why am I having to work so hard? Why am I working myself to the bone when my sister Mary can just sit at the Lord's feet? I'd like to be sitting at the Lord's feet too, but I can't because I have all this work to do. And again, I think we can sympathize with Martha here. I mean, isn't it reasonable, you know, that maybe Mary could get up and lend her a hand? One does not seem reasonable. But as an aside here, this is kind of a little rabbit trail. As an aside, I want to point out that it's also possible that there was some pride involved on Martha's part here as well. And it's the kind of pride that says something like this. Oh, sure, I'd love to go to that conference or I'd love to go to that special meeting, but I just have too much to do. When in reality, you really don't have that much to do or it's things to do that could wait until a later time. And in other words, you're saying those things because you want people to feel sorry for you. Oh, you know, poor so-and-so, she really wanted to come, but she couldn't because she's just so busy. And then you kind of end up being the martyr uh, and everyone feels sorry for you. And I think there's, there's a danger in that. And I've seen it in my own life. You know, you want people to, to feel sorry for you. Uh, you know, I'm just too busy to do this, too busy to do that, and, and people feel sorry for you as a result. And if that's something you're prone to do, stop doing that. It's only hurting you. It's only hurting yourself when you do that. You're only hurting yourself. And it can be a very subtle thing. But it's possible that that's what was going on with Martha here too. It's hard to know just based on what we have, but it's possible that she was feeling some of that martyr complex, you know, I'd like to sit at the Lord's feet, but I can't because I have so much work to do. And so, you know, wanting everybody to feel sorry for her now because she's having to work and can't just sit there at the Lord's feet learning from him. But anyway, things come to a head here in verse 40, and we have this confrontation. Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him, to the Lord, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving? 
has left me to do all the serving alone, sorry, then tell her to help me. And here we have our theme statement again for this morning. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. And it's incredible, isn't it? She doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer the question before she makes a demand of him. Uh, do you not care? Then tell her to do something. You know, it's like she doesn't even wait for Jesus to respond. But listen here to the wisdom and the gentleness of our Lord's reply. And we have this in verses 41 and 42. He says, Martha, Martha. And this repetition of the name back then in that culture, it's not, it's not this idea of exasperation. It's, oh, Martha, Martha. It's a, it's a gentle thing. This re- repeating someone's name was a sign of gentleness. Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, in verse 40, it was said that Mary wa- Martha, I'm sorry, that Mar- Martha was distracted. And then here, the Lord adds a couple of more terms. She was worried and bothered. And I think if you put all three of those together, you'd have a pretty good summary of the kind of life that the average person lives in this country. They live a worried distracted and bothered kind of life they worry about everything under the sun they're distracted by glamour and entertainment from the things that really matter and they're bothered by everything that goes on around them and in the world at large and now with the internet we can be worried distracted and bothered about things halfway around the world that we wouldn't even have known about just a few years ago and so even more things to be worried distracted and bothered by and as christians we're not immune to this are we i mean just one example there in matthew 6 Jesus has to counter this tendency for Christians to worry. Do not worry about what you'll eat. Do not worry about what you'll wear. Do not worry about tomorrow. And so we're not immune to this at all. So Martha here is distracted, worried, and bothered, our Lord says, about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. And I think it's here that we begin to get to the heart of the issue. And and I think this is easy for us to miss sometimes when we're reading this. Was Martha wrong in wanting to serve the guests? Is that, was that wrong? No. And in other places, actually, we're commanded to serve other believers, aren't we? We're commanded to serve other people. So it wasn't wrong. It's actually something we're commanded to do in other places. But here's the thing. Was it necessary in this situation for her to be doing that? No. Apparently not. It wasn't. Think of it. Why is that? The Lord of glory himself is a guest in her home, sitting there, teaching. But all she can think about is making sure everyone's glass is filled, the roast is perfect temperature, that so-and-so is comfortable, etc. And she misses out at sitting at the feet of Jesus himself. In other words, to say it another way, she was trying to fulfill the second great commandment while neglecting the first great commandment. And you simply can't do that. Again, is it wrong to want to be a good host? No, but we have to make sure our priorities are straight, and we need to ask ourselves, am I doing the one thing that is necessary, or am I missing God in all of this because I'm worried, distracted, and bothered about so many things? And it's not always an easy question to answer sometimes. I mean, it takes supernatural wisdom as a Christian to even be able to sort out what are what's the one necessary thing in this situation that I should be doing. But we know from this passage that it's, it's possible to be distracted even by good things like service to others in the body of Christ and you end up missing God in it all. It's a matter of priority. And in this particular instance, Mary got it right. Mary is commended because she has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. And to me, the key word here is chosen. 
She's chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, the Lord's not talking about giving up your job or giving up your duties at home so you can sit home and pray and read your Bible all day. That's not what he's talking about. That's not something you can choose to do. You see, you can't choose to do that because you'd have to uh, give up responsibilities that God has called you to do in those areas, responsibilities to God and to your family. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something here that we can choose to do. But even after we get past that whole, that whole realm, I think we would all admit that there are still plenty of things that we get worried, distracted, and bothered about on a daily basis that keep us from choosing the good part in any situation of fellowship with Christ. And that's the real issue being dealt with here. And I can, I can say this for myself, I know this is true, that one of the hardest things that you'll ever face as a Christian is learning how, on a daily basis, almost an hourly basis at times, to choose the good part and to choose the one thing that is necessary in order to maintain fellowship with the Lord. Worries abound, distractions abound, things to bother us abound. And they can even be things that are good, like Martha's desire to serve her guests. I mean, you can get into this mode of a religious type of busyness, doing things that in and of themselves are good in some ways, and yet you're missing God. But may God help us in the midst of all of it to know the one thing that is necessary and to choose the good part, because Jesus says that can never be taken away from us and will always lead to blessing from God. And to put it in a nutshell, Jesus said in another place, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, that's the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Martha wasn't doing that in this situation. That's what she was faulted for. She wasn't seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And so again, it's not some kind of automatic mechanical thing where you're, you're just going to know, you know what, what that one thing is, that one necessary thing is in each situation. But you need God's help to know. You know, you get up in the morning and there's so many different things you could be doing. And you have to ask God, Lord, what is the one necessary thing that I need to be doing right now? What's the one thing? What's the good part that I should choose in all of this? You know, and I go to work every day and there's tons of different things I could be doing when I have time off at work. What's the one thing that I should need to choose? And it's not always what you think it's going to be. Because in some ways you would think that the one good thing for Martha to do here would be to serve the guests. But she got it wrong, you see. Um, and so we need the help of God to know what that one thing is. We need to get our priorities straight, and it takes supernatural help to do that. So did the Lord care about Mary's lack of help toward Martha? Well, in a way he did, but it wasn't the way that Martha expected. Like always, he kind of cut through appearances. He got to the heart of the issue and revealed that the real problem here wasn't Mary's lack of help, but it was Martha's failure to realize what was really important in this particular situation. Mary got it, Martha needed to get it, and may the Lord help us to get it as well in our lives on a daily basis, to know that one thing, to choose the good thing that can't be taken from us. And so just in closing here, two accounts very different and yet bound together by this same question, Lord, do you not care? And it's a question I think that in some ways, all of us have asked at one time or another, and it's, some, it's a temptation to ask that question a lot in our Christian lives. Lord, do you not care that I'm going through this? Do you not care that this has happened? Um, and so we have here then times in our own lives when the, that question comes up, we have some guidance here from the Scriptures, at least with a couple of different situations of how we should respond to those, those thoughts and feelings that we have towards God, questioning His care, questioning His love for us. 
Well, that's all I had. Does anyone else have anything to to add or any any questions or any other verses that would pertain to this topic here? You know, I think a lot of times we read that that account there of Martha and Mary, and it's we kind of look at it just as a rebuke of getting involved in worldly type busyness or worldly type things, but that's not what what's really going on there. Uh, you do have passages about that too. You know, there in the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the word being choked out by the the pleasures of the world and what's he say? This the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. And so there I think you have that idea of a worldly type of um, desires and busyness and distractions and things that come in and choke the word out. But here, that's not quite what's going on. It's more of almost a religious type of busyness that causes a person to to try to do all these different things that are good in some ways, and yet they miss God in it, and they're not putting God first in their lives. Like I said, they're neglecting the first great commandment to try to fulfill the second. And you've always got to fulfill the first great commandment first. That's why Jesus said it was the first one. You have to love God first, and then you can love other people um, the way that you ought to.